Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Beatrix Campbell, a writer, journalist, broadcaster, and playwright. Campbell was active in the women's liberation movement, and she was a founder of Red Rag, a Marxist and feminist journal. She was also a Green Party candidate for Camden Council, Bloomsbury Ward, and a Green Party parliamentary candidate for Hampstead and Kilburn. Her forthcoming book, Secrets and Silence, about child sexual abuse, will be published next spring. I welcome Beatrix Campbell to Savage Minds. Let's begin with you, because first of all, your accent. Can you tell me where you're from? I can almost place it. <laughs> well, okay, guess. Uh, Newcastle. No, funnily enough, uh, it's, I'm, I'm from the northwest. I'm, I'm from a little border town um, between England and Scotland. Um, its natural trade route, funnily enough, is with Newcastle. Uh, but the Newcastle accent is a thing unto itself. And my accent is indeed also a thing unto itself. But I left there uh, when I was 19. So I lived in London for 20 years, then Newcastle for, da, 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 you know, all over the place. So my accent is a bit of um, a mush, I would say. <laughs> you were a Communist Party member. Yes. I'm curious about what led you to shift to the Green Party and the reasons behind your political party change. Right. Um, well, right. My experience of the Communist Party was shaped by, first of all, by my parents. They were communists. And they became communists after the Second World War because... Certainly in, in England, there, there became a very powerful feeling that the Red Army and the alliance with the Soviet Union and the incredible, unspeakable sacrifices of the Soviet Union, um, the animated part of their, their feeling uh, about socialism. And I think it was compounded by a sense that the Labour government of the post-war period, you know, was in some ways remarkable but very, very, very limited. So for British communism was always small. It was anchored in the labor movement and it was very much about solidarity, equality, democracy. Um, ultimately it was, I think, cauterized really, oh, in terrible ways by what emerged about the Soviet Union and the horrors of Stalinism. And so in my family, we were, a lot of our family arguments would be, as when I was a teenager, over uh, uh, the Soviet Union, the invasion of Czechoslovakia, Stalinism. And, and interestingly for my mother, her position was, because her people, were, she was Dutch and her people were really, Christians and socialists um, and her feeling was you know it's between them and us and uh, and the Russians are us and the capitalists are them and you know it was, it was a kind of moral thing. And my generation of course very very different and so my experience in the Communist Party was as part of the constituency within it that was pretty anti-Soviet 
anti-Stalinist, opposed the invasion of Czechoslovakia, opposed, not that it was our time, but in retrospect, the invasion of Hungary and the horrors of dictatorship. And um, our generation in the Communist Party really fought that and fought for a larger project, something that was like, can I say, the renewal of communism depended upon shedding that dictatorial history. Um, and there were, in the 70s, really fascinating debates within the Communist Party about all of that. And uh, it was a place of, of incredible intellectual and activist vigour. Funnily enough, after uh, the invasion of Czechoslovakia, more young people really began joining and more feminists began joining because um, my generation of feminists, we were just, we were just unyielding about uh, the women's liberation movement, which we just threw ourselves into without any feeling that, oh yeah, we're going to take it over because we're communists. It was quite the other way around. We thought that the uh, the salvation of the Communist Party would be if it was, it became a feminist organisation and recognised the autonomy of all sorts of, of other movements. By the end of, uh, by the end of the 80s and the defeat of Gorbachev and Perestroika uh, and the triumph of neoliberalism in the world I think for us felt like, well, this was the end and that the communist tradition um, had exhausted itself. And so then we moved to the, the emergence of, of green politics and that just seemed like the most obvious uh, place to be because the, the green agenda uh, is about social justice and a just and responsible relationship to the, the earth and the renewableness of the earth. And, you know, communists had, a lot of communists had to really shake themselves up because they had, we had belonged to uh, a global communist project that was about growth, productivity, industrialization in a reckless way. Um, and people were living with the consequences of that uh, in horrible, Horrible places. So uh, green politics seemed to many of us like a, an obvious answer to dictatorships, productionism, reckless capitalism, um, a radicalism that was much more comprehensive about life, you know, from birth to death. Um, yes. Yeah, so, that was it. And it felt, I think, also that for feminism, the green agenda, again, was a natural, a natural place for us to be um, because it spoke to, you, you know, a way, an ethic of thinking about the earth as a place that you share, that you have responsibility for, that you have to take responsibility for in everyday life, how life can be renewed, how it can be sustained. So that kind of language, I think, is very consonant with, with feminism. Did Green Party politics, or has it over the years, 
stepped further away from, let's say, a Marxist or socialist mandate? I don't think so exactly. I think it's it's very alive to the need to be tactical and the need to be adroit in the way that you create alliances and priorities. I think that it's inherently anti-capitalist, but it does business with business, because you have to. You have to have a politics that enables people to function in the world that it is, and that in the world as it is, and change it. So I don't think it's, uh, yeah, I think that's how I, I think that's how I would put it. As you well know, gender ideology has become a problem both in labor and in the Green Party. And as someone who is also of the left, I find myself with my jaw gaping, thinking there is nothing left about this. There is, in fact, with any identity politics in a complete abandon of historical materialism. Uh, as we spoke earlier, the the effects of COVID have ravaged communities that were previously being ravaged, but now bringing a new meaning to the word poverty, destitution, hunger, including in my own country. Hunger in the United States was not very well covered in the national or international media, but people who work in grassroots organizations in the US know very well that hunger is a thing. Poverty is rife. What has happened to the left within, let's say, labor, Corbyn's push to gain a position of power with momentum, hooking onto a certain age demographic, where the focus seemed to be identity of a lot of males over the reality that women were asking to be addressed? Similarly, the Green Party, as you know, the debacle with David and Amy Challoner. But it goes far beyond that, as you know. Every party, every single party has a problem about gender. All of them have been uh, framed by patriarchal priorities and the relative privilege of men. And bear in mind that the, the Labour Party's history is anchored in a Labour movement that was shaped at the end of the 19th century, uh, in the moment of the labor movement's capture by men. And this is wonderfully uh, recorded by a wonderful book called Even the New Jerusalem by a historian called um, Barbara Taylor. And it's, it's very important to remember that because now, you know, hundred going on 150 years later, the labour movement itself is transformed. There are more women in trade unions in Britain, even though the trade unions are much diminished than there are men. More women vote labour than men. And yet it's been unable to transform itself into an organisation. And I think this is very much to do with organisation and what organisations do um, at the moment in British politics, thinking about what, what public opinion is and all of that. So, so part of the problem is how progressive parties recover from their own history as patriarchal organisations. In the Green Party, 
that's taken a most peculiar form. Just, uh, I think we're often just lost for words at just how mad it's been. And, and that's because a party that would be, that was, has been led by women in so many ways, was captured by a transgender ideology that decided, number one, that uh, there was no debate. Number two, that the feminists who were trying to have a debate were somehow transphobic and the enemies of trans people. And number three, what then happened, I think, is that people who didn't share that kind of temper just got frightened, absolutely terrified. And most people in the Green Party would want to be nice. They'd want to support the human rights of trans people, but weren't, they weren't in that conversation particularly, and they didn't quite get what was at stake. And what they didn't get was that there was an extraordinary surge of uh, highly organised, highly resourced, incredibly resourced uh, trans ideology and trans interests that became really uh, quite hegemonic. So the Labour Party, very typically, we support trans rights, blah, blah, blah. Um, uh, trans women are women, no debate, without even having consulted the women in the organisation. The same thing happened with the, the Green Party. It adopted a policy that appeared to be one thing, that appeared to be nice, supporting human rights, and ended up being quite another. So the internal life of the Green Party has been uh, hammered by an absolutely unprecedented level of toxicity and a kind of cultish madness, I have to say. Now, how long that will last, um, who can tell? Certainly in the Green Party, that trans cult type of extremism is now being more and more confidently challenged. And women and men in the organisation are, I think, increasingly feeling, oh, this is ugly, ugly politics ugly politics, the gay movement, likewise, has been hugely challenged about this. And some of us in the gay movement have uh, pulled out of the kind of tent of Stonewall, which is the vector of extreme trans, in my view, exclusionism, and have returned to an agenda which is a pro-gay rights agenda, which is very focused on uh, on desire and choice about that rather than an identity thing which is which has taken us in, into a, a cul-de-sac. So I think there is a level of disturbance now about what was apparently a settled business a couple of years ago. I don't think it is. Um, but organisations allowed themselves to be taken over by uh, an agenda that they hadn't really considered, didn't really understand, and certainly their members didn't particularly understand. Their members wanted to be nice. They didn't want to be full of hatred. They didn't want to be people who, like some uh, trans extremists in, in the UK, say, there is no debate. If we're going to have a debate, you wish me dead. Madness.
you know, madness. So I think the, you're right to locate that in a problem of uh, a historic problem of whether these parties have really assimilated what sexual politics means. What would it mean to take the side of women? I think they haven't, that hasn't, it's not yet in their DNA. Um, and they're going to have to rediscover it. On your second thing, I think there's a different thing going on. That there was that the, the moment of Corbyn was an ex, a huge surprise. The discovery that people want a progressive politics was a huge surprise to the Labour Party. Crazy, I know, but I think it was. And it was a huge surprise in the 2017 election when Labour with Corbyn really did very, very well. Didn't win, but did very, very well. What was underestimated, I think, was two things. One, the monumental, visceral hatred of our national media. Two, the extraordinary balance that uh, the Brexiteers had, which really was very, very difficult for Labour, very, very difficult. And thirdly, I think, uh, underestimating what would it mean to be a progressive Labour Party that wasn't defensive and shut and frightened, and Corbyn's office became shut. It couldn't, it, it didn't grasp how to engage with the fact that, that the organisation was complex and you you need to build alliances with bits of the party that you, you that don't like you very much. Um, I'll tell you what comes to my mind. An extraordinary moment at the beginning of the 1980s in London, where I was working as a journalist, and uh, the, a, a left candidate, Ken Livingston, um, and a small, smallish group who were on the left in the Labour Party in London, won uh, leading positions and adopted uh, a progressive agenda. Now, what was fascinating was that the, the media were really, really vicious, but, but the, 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 the Livingston axis and the broad left that supported Livingston at the time were very adroit. What they didn't do was insist on dominating the party as a left. What they did do was to cultivate alliances across the Labour Party in London around issues that attracted monumental support. So they had a transport policy, for example, that the, that the opposition took them to court over. You know, um, were, were Labour going to be allowed to cut fares in London on the buses and the tube? Well, in the end, they, they, they won, but it was a huge, huge struggle. And it was incredibly popular. Of course it would be. Of course it would be. Uh, so I think they learned something really important. The, the leadership of the, the left in the Labour Party in the early 80s learned something really important, and it was how to be popular and left at the same time, how to address the issues that make a difference to everyday life for working class people, poor people, and indeed middle class people, anybody who lives in the city. And 
the, the Blairite left hated it, didn't learn from it, uh, and assumed that if you became minimally progressive and xenophobic, that that would be a magic formula. Well, it isn't. It's a very dangerous formula. You've got to be more than minimally progressive and you've got to be not then xenophobic. So I think that uh, now the post-Corbyn, we're in a post-Corbyn moment, and my worry is that the, the positive lessons of Corbynism, which is that you can be progressive and radical and a change maker, have been forfeited out of panic. I keep thinking back to the stories about Dagenham and the auto industry, workers' rights, bringing back jobs. Ironically, and again, I'm not a Trump supporter, but I'm about to invoke him here. <laughs> it's also interesting, as a journalist, I'm sure you've noticed, CNN's continued love affair with Trump since he's left office. Every day, their front page is littered with stories about Trump. But when Trump about 18, no, it was before the pandemic, it was about 20 months ago, he made a move to keep solar panel production within the United States. He suggested, in fact, not importing solar panels. And the Democrats in the United States got very upset with this. And I thought, well, in the ethos of bringing back jobs, in the ethos of green ecology, shouldn't we be producing more locally? Aside from what many people do in terms of going to Planet Organic in London or Whole Foods in the US, trying to be ethical, even though most of the people who can afford to go to both of those shops will not be lower class, but we are aware that buying locally, buying organics important. What about locally produced solar cells? And what about the fact that workers' rights need to also be discussed in a way that if they talk about immigration rules, that it might not be the case that everyone on the right is a complete xenophobe. Do you see where I'm heading with this? Yeah, I do. In the sense of Brexit seemed to pit some, some scarecrows out there that had some truth to it if you pointed out some of the more well-known xenophobes in the media, but they didn't necessarily, in general, cut and paste with the EDL, for instance. That wasn't what the conversation was. That wasn't what the Brexit referendum was about. You have to bear in mind that uh, there's been an extraordinary transformation of people's feelings about Europe, belonging to Europe, internationalism, uh, and what that might mean. The left voted against membership of the uh, European community in 1975. The left didn't vote against in, uh, in the referendum. And one of the things that I think has contributed to that is, a, is the recognition that workers' rights, for example, in Britain, have been transformed by membership of the European Union. Um, if I think about the, uh, the fate of the region, which voted very heavily for Brexit, the northeast of England, working class, historically coal mining, shipbuilding, engineering, now uh, very dependent on the welfare state uh, for its source of employment and massively dependent on Europe for the infusion of funds to save it from the worst ravages 
of deindustrialization. Humberside, which is around uh, Hull, Lincolnshire, Yorkshire, very, very, uh, in lots of ways, decrepit, deindustrialized, hugely agricultural, massively dependent on European labor to work the fields. So those two regions voted massively for Brexit. And the perception amongst many voters in the northeast of England was, you know, we've lost all our shipyards and coal mines because of Europe. Hold on a second. No, that is not true. We lost our shipyards because of Thatcherism. And the deindustrialization of Britain is massively to do with uh, the neoliberal ethos. So there was a kind of madness about the debate. Um, it wasn't about uh, bring it all back to Britain, bring jobs back to Britain, all of that stuff. It wasn't um, the, the, the I, I understand your worry about saying that it was only a, a xenophobic interest that drove the success of the Brexit vote. I think it was decisive, I have to say. It was decisive in the sense that um, the, the part of the population that voted against its own economic or it, its own economic interests or against the kind of solidarities upon which it depends did so because of xenophobia. People were disaligned from their economic and class interest in lots of ways um, because of that xenophobic um, allure. And part of that comes, I think, also from, well, it's always there. It's always there. I mean, it's got to be there because, you know, Britain's history is as an imperial history. Um, but it was also a kind of strange, uh, the strange way in which xenophobia and English nationalism and Nigel Farage and UPIC uh, UKIP became a kind of default position. Let me give you an example. I was going to be one of the panel on a BBC uh, debating programme, any questions. And uh, a couple of days beforehand, I get a call saying, oh, I hope you don't mind, but we're going to stand you down because we've had the immigration figures in this week and it showed that, there's, that the, the, the Conservative Party's pledge to reduce immigration to virtually nothing um, has failed. And so, well, we've got to get on UKIP. And I remember thinking to myself, why? Has UKIP become the default voice on immigration? Well, the answer was yes. So it, 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 it tells you something about the state of British politics that uh, a party that was, uh, at one time, the size of the Green Party, its leader appeared on telly and radio more than any other single leader. Nigel Farage, incredible. So he was given, as it were, the arena. I'm not saying that, that you know, if he hadn't been, that, he, that the outcome would have been different. We don't know what it was, but it tells you something about the, uh, the mood and, the psyche of our broadcast media 
that 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 became the case that this minority organization with far right affiliations xenophobic affiliations that lied a lot got away with it and it did I was pretty shocked by a few things about the way journalism works, because when you're not in it, everything's new and some of it can be quite shocking. One was how interactions with publications and editors work, such that I was very naive. (laughs) I had to come to understand that there are certain publications you can't pitch certain types of stories to. And I thought, wait, this sounds more like political partisanship. I mean, shouldn't journalism be about covering issues. Well, I quickly had that bubble burst. Another thing was this, that when it comes to BBC or ITV media shows, they happen in the States and Canada as well, where there are four panelists and they're journalists. And then you have the four guests. We saw this recently over the IOC Olympics inclusion of a male in a women's sporting competition. And they invited four men. This was pointed out by one of the four men who was there. But the response was, well, we have two female journalists here, the ones who were on the other side of the panel. The thing is, is that we're always seeing this odd skirting around the central story. Why was the right given a certain weight at a certain period of time? Similarly now, I'm sure you read recently about what's happened at The Guardian up top with the debates between Catherine Viner and others. How is it the publications ultimately have been the ones being that Pied Piper for political ideology? I think that's, yeah, I, you're, you're hitting on something that's very dispiriting. Uh, what can we say? Several things. One, that the the fate that the the priorities of journalism have been transformed. So, for example, you'll have more columnists on a newspaper now, and more sports coverage than you will have coverage of, say, what's happening in the courts. Uh, there'll be big issues being addressed and resolved in the courts. We used to have things called court reporters. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, God, we used to have industrial reporters who would be every day covering negotiations between capital and labour, conditions of work, where people were placing their, uh, their investments. Uh, I yeah, Disappeared. Court reporters disappeared you turn up for the opening day and for the final day and that's that so there's something about the quality of journalism that's that's very very uh, very diminished the decline of the the local press hugely significant because it means that uh, in an area uh, let's say i don't know london liverpool uh, the local press is part of some conglomerate that will allocate two inches to Liverpool's latest news, but the rest of it will be national or it will be adverts. So there's, there's, that's one issue, which is to do with the, uh, the decline in the depth and span of journalism. The other issue, I think, with the, certainly with the gender thing, is I have never known 
and I'm of a certain age where I can say with completely with complete confidence I've been in and around politics all of my adult life I have never known uh, a moment as toxic as this the Guardian's a good example the Guardian will has been bullied into not having the gender debate it, it's been bullied uh, it's been told, you know, you can't have this debate. It is not a debate. You are killing me if you have this debate. Uh, it's, it, it's been faced with huge aggression. One of its columnists, Owen Jones, uh, who, you know, will go, and fight, will go in and fight fellow journalists for their right to express their opinions, as he does, and he'll fight against their right to do that. Uh, and he will he will have some sway. It's extraordinary, extraordinary. This capacity for uh, dreadful bullying, dreadful bullying. Uh, so I think these things have to be. We have to get at what it is that's specific about the problem. The problem about uh, uh, having a debate about um, the transgender issue is: Do you agree that there's a debate? And if you are not prepared to accommodate that debate, then you, you end up in the situation that The Guardian finds itself in. And ironically, for lots of feminists and lots of men who don't share that position, they've had to go somewhere else to articulate their views. And very often, they'll be finding that the only place to go is to the right. It's a horrible position to be in. Horrible. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. Over the gender debate, I've had discussions with many women from the left who've left labor, who say, I feel politically homeless. I'm sure you've heard that quite a bit. And myself included, I'm certainly not about to join UKIP or start voting for the Conservative Party. However, Beatrix, I will say this, I've had to come to terms with my inner woke. There's a lot to be said for the way that we grow in my age. I'm <laughs> chugging along here. I have come to understand that nuance is necessary, that yeah. maybe not everyone who voted for Brexit is a racist or a xenophobe. At the same time, I would be the last person to say that there is no homophobia, there's no xenophobia, there's no racism. Of course there is. But this raises questions for how we come together. I'm thinking of the recent Euro uh, match this week, where now there seems to be a bit of controversy about British players or English players taking the knee. Can we cut and paste American politics, just like last summer, saw a certain kind of will to reproduce BLM in England, but that didn't really come over so well. Not only because you have the likes of Trevor Phillips saying, wait, racism isn't the same there as it is here. And no, we don't have the same history, might we need to also on the left understand the kind of nuance that would allow us to sit down at the table with a Tory member, for instance? Sure, we always have done, as it happens. I think that the, 
you know we always have done and you live in a world where you're sitting next to a person on a bus you've no idea how they vote but you're on the bus together and you need to be able to have a conversation I live in a village now where uh, three quarters of the vote is left a quarter of it isn't and that quarter includes some of my neighbours wonderful neighbours we love each other and we we are very careful about what we do and don't get into. We get into actually what makes our friendship with each other work. So here's the thing. I think that the if you go back to the uh, taking the knee, the fact is that in the UK, as in the US, actually, as it happens, as in France, um, if you're black, the likelihood that you will be harassed uh arrested messed about discriminated against um is well it's inevitable it's a part of the life that you have so i think that the the way in which black people in britain connected with take the knee was to do with for all of our differences things that are stand out shared and one of those is the victimization of black people and the other is the sport as an arena in which you can air that stuff because there's been a huge movement in in football uh, over the last what 30 years um for exemplified by for example kick it out which was um, a movement to campaign against racism in football to campaign against what would have been the universal experience of black players who were abused routinely as soon as they came onto the pitch. Dreadful, dreadful, dreadful. And isn't it ironic? Well, it's not ironic, actually. It's so predictable that after uh, the, the Euro final result, black people saying, oh, my God, I knew instantly what was going to happen to those young fellas. I knew instantly that black people were going to get abused because of those lost penalties and it happened so you've got to start from the place that one of the things that we share in the UK with the US is for all of our differences a recognition that black people live with racism day in day out and the resistance to it may uh, one of the platforms that we share is uh, harassment and victimization by the police so taking the knee became a gesture that actually meant a great deal to, uh, to British players for whom racism was just part of the kind of shock of everyday life, always a shock and always everyday life. So the, uh, the fact that the whole team took the knee, I think was an extraordinary moment in football's history and the expression and the fact that they were supported by um, Southgate, uh, the manager. A very, very interesting and very interesting guy. So it's a very important moment that shows something is afoot in our society. And it's also very important that we recognise that the humiliation uh, that those three lions then met was also predictable. There is something about, you need know, to use your word, the nuances and differences of racism that have to be understood 
But the really big thing that has to be understood is that it's just there. It's there. It falls off the tongue without thinking. Well, in France, when I lived there, my experience was that, just as in the US, every country and community has that group of people that they hate the most. And in France, what I found, it wasn't going to be the immigrant from Senegal or Côte d'Ivoire, it was going to be, they say, oh, I had a huge argument once in Marseille with someone who kept pointing to the Algerians walking along the seashore saying, yeah. oh, but they live in La Cité. And I'm like, excuse me? <laughs> so I found in France very quickly, and I learned this years before when I lived in Paris, that the perceived danger, and I was there in the 80s during the terrorist attacks, it was the Algerians. The Algerians seemed to be this, or the Maghrebins, seemed to be this much hated group over and above others. Now, I say that because that's what I experienced then and things do change. But one of the arguments that I've seen many people make to include back in the US, John McWhorter or Trevor Phillips in the UK, that mm -hmm. we can't just pretend that racism is the same today as it was 50 years ago. Has racism been used a bit too much to sort of paste over what are class issues? Because clearly Trevor Phillips isn't going to have problems getting a job or getting a black cab as other people who might have a certain accent. Are we maybe too steady or ready to appropriate racism as it once was rather than evaluate how it exists today? Because this is something I battle with myself. I have written loads on racism and xenophobia, loads on Islamophobia, my goodness. Um, it's one of the reasons why I chose not to live in my home country post 9-11. But things have changed in certain ways, not to say that racism has disappeared. But I guess the knee issue reminded me of the debate back in the States three years ago when Colin Kaepernick took the knee he lost his place on his team, gained a contract with Nike. But there seemed to be more understanding that there was a direct connection between what he was doing and the lives of black men who are in prison at extraordinarily high rates for crimes that are often not criminal in many other countries. Carrying around a small amount of weed I do not believe is something that you would go to prison for in any EU country today, for instance. And if you did, it certainly would not be on the range of 30 years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Disenfranchisement laws, which have set out expressly mm -hmm. to take away the right of black men in prison to vote. Again, once you've been convicted of a felony, you cannot vote. So there's a, a direct connection between some of the laws that came into place during Reaganism and Clintonism that affected the ways in which black men have been not less oppressed, but more oppressed. The media seems to like to go back to using terms like racism, even when there might not be substance to back it up. Again, I'm not saying there's no racism, but I'm saying is that I see this becoming a media trope. And is it so that anyone who votes Labour is necessarily 
not racist, of course not, or anyone who votes for the right wing parties is. This is where I have a bit of a problem with the way that media represents politics today, because the left and the right divide to me no longer means and hasn't for some time that a labor member is someone who believes in council housing, is a, is a person who believes in the decriminalization of marijuana, who believes that green ecology needs to be rolled out very fast, including car share programs, maybe the end to privately owned vehicles, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm not seeing this being reflected in a lot of the journals like the media on the left should be doing today. What I'm seeing instead, bizarrely, is the Daily Mail speaking for women's rights. And I'm thinking, what planet am I on? I find myself looking at Tucker Carlson from Fox News in the States, who has during lockdown been speaking out about the rights of the workers and the poor. Meanwhile, the neoliberal left in, in places like The Nation have been putting out pieces talking very badly of those concerned about what lockdown means. I'm sort of putting this all together for you in the sense of, I don't know if we can talk about left and right anymore. I'm worried that the media makes its living off of this kind of pushing both sides against the middle, making out the right as being all Farage, let's say, and making the left to be all Corbyn lovers, when that doesn't really represent what's happening now. Is there something wrong here where we're denying material reality, where the right is now coming in? Almost, it, it almost has an open door to come in and say, but wait, biology matters. Viruses are real, but are mitigation efforts working? I think you're talking about the way that populism uh, connects with and resonates with real grievances very often. The question is what it then does with that. So the, the populist response uh, to, to things that are manifestly problematic, firstly, is often, you know, very, very unstable. It can kind of switch on a dime, as you might say. Um, but secondly, I think it, what, what it does with it is to drag those real grievances into the interests of traditional power. So the Daily Mail, never in a million years, is a paper that's going to advance the interests of women. Everything that it's about, which is uh, a kind of fetishistic love for power and wealth, for scandal, which is, again, stuff that can be scandalous and turn on a dime. Um, it's representation of women is just, uh, it's sexism day in, day out. What it has done periodically, and this is why it's such an enormously successful newspaper, is occasionally to, to tap into the way in which some grievance finds articulation in popular culture and to go with it. It did it, for example, over the Stephen Lawrence murder. It was, it was unyielding in its support of the Lawrence family to find out why their boy had been killed doesn't mean that it's not a, you know, a post-colonialist racist rag, because it is. Um, I think the same thing has happened on, on the territory of gender. It's seen 
but something which I hesitate to use the word common sense, but it's kind of got it that the the, the lunacy of trans cult discourse uh, it isn't common sense. It doesn't have anchorage in common sense. So it's gone with it. Now, part of the, the tragedy of that, of course, is that the, the pub, progressive publications have provided no space for the complexities of this. It's the same, I think, as the, the argument that you were trying to make about, uh, about Trump. Of course, Trump spoke to the working class voters. He didn't share their interests. He didn't represent their interests, but he spoke the language of, or he, he addressed them. He connected with them and dragged their concerns into something that was always gonna be pro-capitalist, anti-green, you know, reopening coal mines in whose interest, for goodness sake. So I think, the clever thing here is to get a grip of what how populism works. It always attaches itself to real grievances. The question is, what does it then do with them and where does it take them? Well, you mentioned the coal mines and the effects of Thatcherism that she had on industries like that, shipbuilding, other production sites. And what also happened in 1979 was the introduction of ways to make the British homeowners. And I think she cleverly was able to switch political loyalty of a lot of people on the left, because if you can have the right to buy, even the, the idea of right to buy, it sounds quite a right wing term to use, but she was able to sell people into the idea of buying what were council flats, now privatized. And years ago, around 2011 or so, I interviewed Brian Barnes, who's one of your wonderful muralists. He's one of the artists who worked on the Wandsworth mural, which yeah. is now destroyed. And he gave me a great history lesson. We were in his house. He talked to me about this at length. When Thatcher left office, then you had the shift of the way the universities were handled. I believe that began with major. And this has all had a knock-on effect on the poor and the working class and their access to housing, to higher education, I'm thinking of key workers in London who can't possibly afford a house, uh, a rental, much less. I lived in the Golden Lane Estate at a point in time when I lived in central London, and that was the first council flat built after the war, and it was housing mostly nurses. So a lot of my neighbors were 90-year-old former nurses, and I would talk to them about <laughs> that history. It was fascinating. But the, the government took care of people. Now we're talking back to what you mentioned at the very beginning with the creation of the welfare state, the NHS. All these great institutions came into being. But there seems to have been this huge disconnect between Thatcher Major and, and Blair, where the left or people on the left became swayed by the idea of, wow, I can own a house too. There was this disconnect between what I have and what generations after me will no longer have access to. Hence, the time I spoke with Brian Barnes, the tenancy in council flats sunk from what was 49% around 1980 to less than 14%.
And I'm sure it's even lower now. So we see that there is this will on the left to do good. But I think sometimes that the actions don't necessarily correspond, getting back to the issue of gender identity. How is it that someone like Peter Tatchell, who is well known within the gay rights movement, but today people accuse him of being out of touch with gender politics because his mantra, as you see on Twitter, perhaps, it's TWAW, trans women are women. And he is also accused of, of supporting other mm, narratives, let's call them that, that want to sexualize younger gay children. And I'm wondering if you might speak to this, because one thing that I've been really obsessing over in recent months is this problem of it seems the right is always saying no and the left is always saying yes with the ethos, the underlying ethos being yes is a good thing, it's a progressive thing. No is a regressive and conservative thing to say. My idea is that neither are true. My idea is that every situation needs to be evaluated and that yes is a, a statement that can only be made by a, an adult human subject. Children, I do not believe, can consent to being a transgender individual or to having numerous surgeries or hormones being planned on their bodies, much less inflicted. And I think that one thing the left has to come to terms with is that progressivism isn't going to always come at the end of a yes. I think we have to start saying no. And I, I think your book might be a point of entry to that, but I'm, I'm wondering if you could speak to us about that. <laughs> well, I think you're, you're onto something very, really complicated and really interesting. Um, well, let's take two things, if, if you don't mind. The, the thing about council housing, the Labour Party was never opposed to council house sales by the time that that became uh, the mantra of Thatcherism. What it was opposed to was council house sales and councils not being able to uh, appropriate those funds for rebuilding or new building of council homes. So it was that trick that Thatcherism pulled that was uh, that was so dangerous because the thing was, the thing that people remembered was your right to buy your own house that you lived in. I grew up in a council house. Uh, most people I knew did. 60% of the population lived in a council house of people of my generation. Um, the, 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 the trick of all of that was what the deal wasn't was, okay, I can buy my house and the funds from that will be reinvested in public housing. It was a mission to diminish public housing. And, and you look anywhere now, the council estates that, uh, ugh, where there's been a massive amount of investor buying, they're a wreck. They're just a wreck. And it's impossible for people who, uh, you know, who are renters essentially to have access to social housing now in our great cities. It's not impossible, but it's very, very difficult. Okay, it's another very good example of the way that the rhetoric of these things work. Okay, let's go to sexual abuse. I think sexual abuse 
belongs to neither the right nor the left uh, or any political party, no political party has seriously addressed it and taken responsibility for it. It's, it's a hugely politically expensive thing. That said, I think that workers in the health service and in social services, generally speaking, are kind of progressive, care about it, know about it, and want something done about it. What they've not succeeded in doing is attracting the attention of political, political leaders in any political party, really, at all. At all, at all, at all. Okay, so there's that issue. Second issue is that I think it's very difficult for people to, uh, to square two contradictory feelings. Again, it's very like the trans issue in, in one sense, which is people want to be nice, they want to be uh, humane, they, they want to say, yeah, yeah, rights, yeah, yeah, human rights, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then when it comes to confronting what goes on in families, what some fathers do, people recoil from the implications of that. Even though, for example, the majority of uh, the, the, the main preoccupation of our recent independent inquiry into child sexual abuse, which was, which was organised to focus on abuse historically in institutions and in public cultures, uh, it has a truth project and 40 odd percent nearly 50% of the people who've taken their story to the Truth Project were sexually abused in their families. But that's not the agenda of the independent inquiry. So I think that, and, and one of the things that my book will argue is that sexual abuse within the family has kind of disappeared from the political agenda, but also massively from the institutional agenda. It's not something that so, social workers are taught about, it's not something that police officers are taught about. Nobody knows what to do about it. It's a huge lacuna um, in our society. And uh, people will think two, two contradictory thoughts at the same time. One is, oh my God, it's terrible. And, oh, but you don't want to send a poor fella to prison, do you? You know? It is, it's so typical this. And it's also hitting one of the greatest taboos of our culture which is why you have those two thoughts that combat against each other. If not, let's not send them to prison. People do something I find just as bad. They, and this is not uncommon, as I'm sure you know, there are many people who will know that the sexual abuse is happening and say nothing. Yeah. And this is allowed to give a nod to something that I've talked to sexual abuse survivors who as adults go back they knock on the door of those people who knew. I have a very good friend in Harrogate who did this and said, I'm aware that you knew what was happening. And she spoke to the people. And we've seen many cases of even mothers staying with abusive partners, yep. not taking action. Hence the recent yep. court case. I don't know if you read about this. I put it on my Facebook wall two days ago. The woman who put boiling water on her husband because yep. she learned he sexually abused their children. Yep. And I am very into nonviolence, but I put it up there and I said, good. <laughs> Why doesn't she have a medal? I, and I said also, 
I'm not pro-violence, but we all know the court system would have failed her. It would. What is the statute of limitations to raise this issue? Because as we all know, a seven-year-old is not going to know that they can go to court. That seven-year-old yeah. will likely be in their 40s before they even yeah. come to terms with some of this. Yeah. Does the UK have a very short statute of limitations on sexual violence? That's that's changed, actually. Um, and there isn't a statute of, of limitations, certainly on, on institutional abuse. I don't know that people quite grasped that there isn't. Um, but you're right, the time gap is, it, 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 it's not even just that it's a problem about the statutes of limitations, it's a problem about how you live with, what the consequences would be of 40 years after the event, doing something about it. It's been hard enough for so many survivors just to live with it, never mind contemplate the the horror of trying to get justice because you will fail our society can't cope with the harvey weinsteins how do people cope with within their own family their father raping their sister i've had many people over the years tell me it it makes the family collapse or they're excised they're the the rape victim is the one who's put outside yeah 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 absolutely Uh, but one thing that is hugely encouraging is that we're even having this conversation we wouldn't have had this conversation when i was eight or nine We wouldn't have had this conversation when I was 20. We wouldn't have had it when I was 30. We are now having it. It is part of public discourse in a way that is absolutely unprecedented. And that's extraordinary.